you have your scriptures tonight, and I hope you do, I ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Running for Eternity. Um, That's our title tonight, and you'll see why when we get there. I'll make it as plain as I can to you. Let me read 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 16. Paul writes to Timothy, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is his testimony before, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained And free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Christian life. I said it once, I'll say it again as we open up. Uh, it's a struggle, and that's pretty about as obvious as it can get if you've been a Christian for any amount of time. It's a fight, it's a conflict, it's a contest, it's a race. Those are all metaphors and analogies that Paul uses. He said our warfare is in the flesh, but our weapons are not, 2 Corinthians 10.3. We don't have weapons like swords and guns. No, they're spiritual because the main battle we fight is spiritual. And sometimes that takes place between believers. James 4 says that we have fights and wars between us, he says. Uh, and then 1 Peter 2.11 says we should abstain from sexual deviancy. Why? Because it wars against the soul. So there are outside things that want to get inside our lives and rip us apart and defeat us. And so Paul loves to use the analogy of fighting, warfare. He also likes the running a race analogy. And I think that's what he's doing here. I'm going to explain that in a little bit. But running the race is often described in one place as well as the one we're using here tonight. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. Actually, 24 says, Know ye not that they which run in a race, everyone runs, but only one obtains the prize. So run that you may obtain it, he says. And the one that, or ESV says, the athlete who runs, but it's really the one who agonizes. And the runner, the Olympic runner, is depicted as a person who agonizes. It means to be straining. And the idea is that you're putting every effort into it. And so the one who agonizes is self-controlled in all things, he says. Uh, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, and he ran the race that was set before him with joy. He's the climax of all those who run the Christian race. Hebrews 11 being a catalog of Old Testament heroes that ran the race and finished well, and how they did it, climaxing and pointing to, I might say, Jesus, who ran the most difficult race of all, And finished the line and was pleasing to his father. As a result of that, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 20 and verse 24 of Acts, he says, But none of these things move me, and I don't count my life as precious unto myself, he says, but I might run the race and complete the ministry which God has given to me. He also says, Paul does in 2 Timothy 2 5, that those who run in a race have to run according to the rules. You could be disqualified from the race if you break the rules, if you don't run the right way. So let me tell you tonight, it matters that you run. It matters that every Christian 
If you're truly a child of God, you are running a race. There is no running and non-running Christians. Every Christian is on a race. The question is not if you're running, but how you're running. And that's what we want to really concentrate on tonight. Galatians had a problem with this. They started off running, and then Paul said in Galatians 5, 7, who has hindered you from keeping on the race or keep running in the race? There are obstacles. There are hurdles. There are things to overcome in this race, and we're going to see some of those tonight. Paul was concerned in his own life, Philippians 2, 16, that he would run, and because of the people's responses to whom he ministered, that he would run in vain, or his run would be empty, that it wouldn't have accomplished anything. So you can see, littered in all throughout the New Testament scriptures, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul, that running a race is a great analogy um, for the Christian life. It was true in the Isthmian Games in his day, and running is no less popular in our day But running matters. Agonizing, working at it, disciplining yourself, completing the race, it matters. Before I get into my three points tonight that are grammatically in the text, I want to go a little bit further with that introduction point, can I? I want to say this before we get to the main part of the text, that who you are determines how you run. And let me show you that in verse 11 of chapter 6. But as for you, and and that little phrase... Two words in the Greek, but you. It's used three other times in his other epistle to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I think it's used three verses 10, 14, and chapter 4 and verse 5. He keeps contrasting Timothy with the theological and spiritual climate around him. With false teachers and, and those who are giving air out in the church. And he says, they're this way, but in contrast, but you. And, and that's what we find him here doing. He says, as he listed some people in the earlier text, there are some people who desire to be rich, verse 9 of chapter 6. Uh, they love money, which becomes the root of all kinds of evil in their life. He says, let me tell you in verses 6 through 10 of the paragraph before, this is some of the marks of those people. But he says in verse 11, but you... But you, you're not like that. And then he describes him with this identity marker. Oh, man of God. Now, he uses it one other time in a very familiar Timothy text in 2 Timothy 3.16. And we know that very, very well. And it's the inspiration passage. And he says in chapter uh, 3 and verse uh, verse 15, I should say, And how from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise through salvation... Uh, through faith in Christ, all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God, and, and, and that's not some new term or novel thing that Paul made up. It is an Old Testament identity marker for the great men of God who God revealed scripture to and that used in a mighty way. Man of God in the Old Testament is used primarily of Moses, but also of Samuel, of Elijah, Elisha, David and a whole host of unnamed prophets who did great things for God, stood up for God in a very difficult time amongst kings who were unbelievers in Israel and stood up for the, and confessed the Lord. They're identity markers. And what Timothy, he needs Timothy to do is to put himself in the long line or the train of all of those runners. 
In other words, Timothy, here's what he would say to inspire him. And also tonight, listen, us. You're running the race and you find it very difficult because of the things going on around you and how difficult the run is because of the obstacles and the hurdles and the conflict and the intense strain it takes on a daily basis. He says, let, you, let me let you know, you are the man of God and you are in a long str- string of man of God, if I can say it that way, who have run difficult races, races with a lot of opposition, a lot of difficulty, a lot of those who stood against them. And I named some of them tonight. And he wants you to know that those guys read their lives. They're your training partners. You go to the gym and you work out, they're going to coach you. They're going to tell you, listen, run this way. And when you face opposition and you you face antagonism. He says, Timothy, this is how you run. Because let me tell you this, the first thing you have to figure out if you're going to run the right race and run the right race the right way, you got to figure out this is who I am. See, I think there are a lot of people, even some who claim the name of Christ tonight, who just flat out are not running the right race because they don't identify as being the right person. Their primary identity is not who they are in Christ. And it's easy to lose that identity and pick up the world's identity. But what Timothy could not do, and Paul exhorted him not to do, is to take his cues about how to run the Christian race from everyone and everything around him. And can I tell you, this is no small thing because Paul is very emotional about it. He says in our verse, O man of God. See the O? That's not just put in there. It's the same word also used in the end of this chapter in verse 20 when he says, O Timothy. See, Paul is leaving. He is going to be gone. It's not that many more years that he's going to be on the scene. And he wants his number one disciple to take his place. But he knows because of the struggles he went through that Timothy's going to experience a lot of the same things. So he's very emotional about it. And he's very strong about it because he wants... Timothy, first and foremost, to know this. When you run this race, you got to know who you are. See, parents, that what we, when our kids run the race and they go to school and they go places and they live in this world, listen, we got to teach them this is who you are. It's not your talent. It's not your ability. It's not what the world says you are. It's not how smart you are. It's not how pretty you are. It's not, no, this is who you are. It's who you are in Christ and who you are in God. And for Timothy, it was, oh, man of God. So now that he has that identity marker established in his life, the rest of it's going to make sense because who you are determines how you run. So Paul's now going to say, let me show you as your number one trainer how to run the race for eternity. And there's three points tonight, and they're right there in the text. You can see them for yourself. In this text that I read to you, there are four imperatives, and we're going to talk about all four of them. The first one is found in that same verse 11, and it says, But as for you, O man of God, see it, circle it, flee. You need to flee. It's the first of the four imperatives. And the second one's going to be flee and then pursue. And I say that because if you want to get another idea of what this looks like and what more he might have been thinking, 2 Timothy Chapter 2 and verse 22 uses the same exact construction where he tells them in that passage, flee youthful lusts. And then add on to it some things that, and then he says, let me add some things to it. So fleeing, and this is number one, you got to learn how to run from things, right? There's, you have to learn how to run from things. For Timothy, it was the love of money in verse 10. 
It was the desire to be rich. And there were a lot of people in Timothy's days that were, day that was going from church to church and appearing to be prophets and apostles and other people, and they were doing it for gain. They were doing it for the money. They were doing it for the wealth and all that went with it. Timothy, he says, you're not like that. You're in a different race. You're not running it that way. And see, that's the kind of stuff you have to run from. Paul would later say to the Corinthians that they needed to flee idolatry. They needed to flee sexual immorality. And as Paul writes his epistles to whether it's Timothy as a pastor or whether Christians at large, there are definitely things, if you're going to run the race and finish it well, that you're going to have to run away from. I actually can think of no better example than Joseph when he runs away from Mrs. Potiphar. If we were to take the time tonight and turn to Genesis 39 that records that event, I I think we would understand tonight that fleeing, running from things, is not just an event, although it is. It is also a lifestyle. In the text, you find in Genesis 39 that Mrs. Potiphar was trying to make advances on Joseph. And the text says that she was doing it day by day. In other words, it wasn't just one time she got turned down and decided to quit. No, that just made her more determined, seemingly. And so she did it on a regular basis when no one was around and her husband wasn't there. And there came a day, and this is the part we're all familiar with. In Genesis 39, 12, it says one time there were no other servants in the house and she caught Joseph by himself and she grabbed him and she said, lie with me. And it says that he ran That's literally the words. It says, he left his garment in her hand and fled. That's our word. And he ran outside. He 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 was fleeing sexual immorality. And, and And it is an event. But let me tell you this. You will never be successful in running away from things if you're waiting to prepare yourself and put measures in place. If you're not doing it before the event, you may not do it during the event. And in Joseph's life, he was doing it way before she grabbed him by the garment. A couple verses previous in Genesis 39 and verse 10, it was says that he would not lie with her. In other words, when she made the advances, he would always say no. And that's a great thing. But then it adds on this little addendum. He says, she, he wouldn't lie with her, nor would he be with her. You see that? You see that? That's fleeing. Fleeing means that I'm not going to do anything with this woman, and I'm not even going to be around this woman. I'm fleeing her influence. I'm fleeing her presence. I'm, flee- I'm fleeing from any impact that she might have in my life. And, and that's what Timothy needed to do. Because it wasn't just fleeing the event of getting rich. It wasn't just fleeing getting money in the ministry. You know what? Throughout verses 9 and 10 in the passage, there are inside words, desire words. And they are loving money. Those who fall into lusts, they desire to be rich. And see, that's what, that's what fleeing means. That's what Joseph knew. That's what Paul knew. And that's what Timothy wanted, him, wanted Timothy to know. And see... See, you fleeing is not just an event on the outside, it's an attitude on the inside. And when you don't give in to the event, it's because you don't even want it to take place. You're, not, you're taking measures so you'll never be around it, so there won't be any possibility as much as possible that it could happen because you are cutting yourself off from those possibilities. So let me just be real practical um, for just a minute. How, how do we flee Therefore, in the 21st century, the things 
like sex and money and power. Those are the normal three, but a lot of, a myriad of other things. And, and let me break them down just practically into three categories. I'll just give them to you. And I've tried to make it so they're easy to remember. Um, there are tempting pleasures. And, and in those verses, again, preceding our paragraph, those who desire to be rich fall in foolish and hurtful lusts. The love of money. Can I tell you this? You were right tonight on the survey because the greatest enemy that we need to run from is not just things that might tempt us on the outside, but things that tempt us on the inside. See, it's the desires. And we've been talking about how to fight that the last couple of Wednesday nights. We talked about temptation. And, and see, he wouldn't even be with her. He wasn't going to get around her so that he could see her if she was beautiful or there's something that he admired or that enticed him. He wasn't going to entertain it. He just wasn't going to do it at all. And so let me tell you this. Flee the what. See, fleeing th- we have to flee from the what first. What? The things that build up these desires can tempt us to want things that we shouldn't want and, and desire things that we shouldn't desire. And so when it comes to these things, there are tempting pleasures and we have to flee from the what? The pleasures that are inside. But not only flee from the what, flee from the where. See, tempting pleasures and tempting places. I mean, he said he wouldn't be any. She found him, but he was not around her. She had to go looking for him. You know why? Because he was trying to stay as far away from her as possible. Romans 13, 14 says... Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And see, everybody who's going to be victorious at running away from fleeing from things, living a holy life in that way, you're not going to have to know what you're tempted by, but where you're tempted. And you need to stay away from those places. If that means in your study at night when your wife's in bed and your computer's there, you shouldn't put yourself there. If you're a teenager, you know what? And you have a boyfriend or you date someone, questionable as it is, Listen, you shouldn't be in a car by yourself. You shouldn't be in place. You know why? Well, that's old-fashioned. No, you know what it is? It's smart because tempting places are real. I mean, when you're by yourself, you're in this place, you're in that place. Listen, everybody's different, and there are different places that you're at that bring you temptations that might be far different than me or anybody else. But there are those places, and you have to learn to fight against them. The where and the when, even the time of it. And if you know this, if you're tempted at time and it's late at night, and I encourage husbands and wives to go to bed at the same time. I always do. And if possible, get up at the same time. And then you monitor where you are when you're doing certain things. You know why? Because all of that matters if you're going to flee from things. And lastly, flee from the who. So there are tempting pleasures, tempting places, and tempting people. There are just people that you're around that maybe the language they use, maybe the things that they are talking about, maybe their kind of priorities in their lives. I, I don't know what it is, but for him, Mrs. Potiphar was definitely a no. Not a, he, he couldn't be around her if he hoped to maintain his purity. So some of you here tonight, it could be, honestly, God brought you here to listen to this message tonight on live stream, and he, all he wants you to hear is this, run, run. Run, O oh man of God. Run, O oh child of God. Run from things. And maybe there is a young person or a young adult here tonight. You need to run from that unsaved boyfriend or girlfriend. And let me tell you, run from them. Flee from them. If you're going to run the race, stay in your lane. 
finish well. You may need to run from them. Run from the person at work that you feel way too comfortable being around. You started asking her out for lunches and you've been meeting with her, talking with her, sharing things with her that you shouldn't share with anybody. See, run from that. Cut it off now. You better run from that. Run from the materialism that's building up in your heart. You want that to be your God. And maybe you're not willing to see it as that, but you want those things. You want everybody to know that you have this and what you have in the car you drive or whatever it might be. Run from that, the desire to be successful at any cost. You better run from it. You know why? Because it could be the ruin of your marriage. It could be the ruin of your family. The sacrifices you're making when you don't spend time with your wife and with your children, it could cost you everything. You need to run from that. The computer screen that you have on and the internets, and let me tell you this, listen to the verse, it'll trap you. It'll drown you in destruction. If you allow yourself to look at those things, it will corrupt you and it could ruin everything that you hold dear. So here's what Paul says to Timothy. Here's how you run for eternity. You have to learn to run from things. Secondly, and also the second imperative, he says, not only do you flee, but you pursue. And the word pursue means to chase after something. It's actually used for hunting and chasing after an animal that you're hunting down or you're running after something. Again, it's that same construction in 2 Timothy 2.22. It's the idea. Now together, put those two imperatives together. There's a putting off and there's a putting on. There's a fleeing from things. There's a running from and there's a running to things. See, there's a, there, there's a lot of things to run from. That's the negative side. But on the positive side, Paul says, here's how, also how you run. You put on things. You run toward things. And he has a whole list of them. Six of them to be exact. And he tells us in the passage if you're going to go to the gym, here's the six area, target areas. You know, if you're being trained by someone, you're going to work out. You may work on different parts of your body. And one day you do your legs, and one day you do your arms, and another day you do your stomach. And, and, so, you know, let me, if you're going to the gym and you're working out and you want to really be the runner that God wants you to be, here's the six target areas that he wants you to work on. Godliness, I mean, sorry, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Now, we don't have time to do all of them tonight. You're going to be a little short on righteousness, patience, and gentleness week, this week because we're not going to cover those. But the three in the middle, we are, and here's why. Because he uses them directly in the text, in the context that we're in. The second one, godliness, is also used in chapter 6, verses 3, 5, and 6. He talks about godliness, and there's some people who don't have godliness, and they think godliness is gain, but it's not gain without contentment. And he uses that, he says, in doctrine that accords with godliness. And it's not just having the right theology, Paul says to Timothy. It's not just having the right sermons and the right stands and convictions on biblical principles. He says there has to be a godliness that goes with it. It's your character, he says. Faith, which is a big deal in the pastoral epistles. He said, listen, here's why you need to Run to some things, because if you don't, see, in chapter 6 and verse 10, you might have desires that you don't properly handle. And you know what happens when you do for some people, he says? He says, this craving, some have wandered away from the faith. Look at that. 
You need to have the right kind of faith. Why? Because some people wander away from it. At the end of our text, in verse 21, he says some people have swerved away from it. I mean, they've got off track. They got out of their, their lane, and now they're running on the, they're going to be disqualified. You know why? Because they're wandering off the race. They're swerving around. They're not staying steady. They're not going toward the finish line anymore. <clears throat> and then he says the word love. And the, love, the word love is mentioned in the verse 10. Don't love money, love God. So you know what you got to do? You got to keep developing that. You got to keep pursuing it. You got to keep running after it. You got to keep wanting it to be in your life. And, and, and let me tell you this. You know how you face the outer problems? Developing inner character. That's what these six things target. These are inner qualities that Timothy needed to withstand the outside pressures in the world in which he lived. And that same passage I've mentioned a couple times now with the same construction of flee and pursue are put together. In that passage, he says, you know where all that comes from? From those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, he says. See, that's really what we're after. I mean, that's what we want to pursue more than anything else. And, and, and so let me just challenge you as a parent, as an individual, and with your teens, what are you and your children running after? What are you really pers- what is your main pursuit in life? Is it internals or externals? What makes the, what matters the most to you or to your teens or to the young adults that still may be in your home? Is it your career or your character? Now, now don't get me wrong in the list of these things I'm going to say. It's not because the other half of the equation doesn't matter at all. The problem is when it matters most. See, when the externals take precedent over the internals, when you are trying to not, when you're not really not running after things, and at the same time you're not running to things, it becomes a great problem. And we get our priorities and our values and what matters most out of line. So what matters most, your success or your sanctification? Would you ditch your sanctification in order to achieve or pursue your success? What matters most, your happiness or your holiness? Your position in your company or your position in Christ? Ladies, what matters most, your external beauty or your internal beauty? And let me have you get a way to measure that. Which mirror do you stand most in front of? Your bathroom mirror or your Bible mirror? Because there are both. And there's a lot of us, maybe young ladies have to maybe take a little evaluation of themselves we may spend more time getting ready every day just to go out in public to be seen of others than we do in private to be seen of God. Something's wrong when that's the factor or that's the truth in your life. See, men, we're not exempt from it. See, what matters most to you? How strong you are physically or how strong you are spiritually? Does it matter how big your muscles are or how big your love is for God and the church your family, or your children. See, what your girlfriend says or what God says, which matters most? Is it what your boyfriend says or what the Bible says? Which matters most? Because if you're not fleeing or running to things, if you're not running toward developing inner qualities and character, can I tell you this? You will not get those antithetical choices right. You won't. All of those things I mentioned tonight that are counterparts to one another, see, they are indicators of which, which race you're really running. So he says there are two tonight. 
two things, two imperatives. You need to flee, you need to pursue, and the third one is to agonize, or as the English says, fight. We need to run away from things, we need to run to things, and we need to run for something. See, for, there is a prize to be won. There is an end result to be achieved. And he says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Agonize, literally the good agony. And it's the same word agonize that was described in 1 Corinthians 9, as I said before, of a runner in a race and how much strictness and how much straining and how much work it took in training to run that race. And I don't believe the word fight is some sort of military battle in this. And since it's used other places in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9 to be one of them, to talk about the effort it took to run the race. So I, I would translate it in an English way. I might say, run the good race. In fact, I think that's what Paul meant in his last stanza of his life. Again, telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. Same phrase, agonized the good agony. And then he adds this line, and I have finished my course. In other words, I agonized and ran the race and, and restricted myself and strained hard at it. And he says, and now I finished my race. And then he tells you what those two things mean. I kept the faith. In other words, I wasn't disqualified, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I didn't swerve. I didn't wonder. I didn't depart from. I didn't apostatize from the faith. Can I show you a slide? Um, and, and, and this is something to be concerned about because the prize of running to, or what you're running for, is it says eternal life. And you have to take hold of it, he says. How you run matters. How much does it matter? It matters eternally. You want to throw that up there, that slide, Steve? If you can see on the screen, and I'm going to try to read, I'm going to turn around because I can't read those. Um, a little dark up there. Um, but it says, thank you. So if you're a true child in the faith, which means there was a danger that people would be false, is a sincere faith means genuine, real, holding faith. You had to hold on to it with a good conscience. If you continue in the faith, which you had to continue to do, great confidence, hold the mystery, fight the good fight, be sound, showing all good faith. Why did he give all those admonishments to keep yourself confident, to keep it, to continue in it? Don't wander away. Don't abandon it. Don't deny, you know, all those ones, because this is what can happen. You can shipwreck your faith, you can depart from it, you can deny it, you can abandon it, wander away from it, swerve, you can upset people's faith, you can be disqualified from the faith. See, you know, see, in Timothy's day, there are a lot of people who were professing faith, but they weren't possessing it. It's not because they lost their salvation, it's because they demonstrated they never had it by the way that they did not keep it. They swerved and they got off track and they didn't run anymore and they denied the faith and they stopped running altogether. See, you know why? Because running matters. It matters that you run. And that's why Paul says this. Here's how you run. Because running isn't optional. He says, take hold of eternal life. In the New King James, this is an inclusio or a bracket for this whole paragraph section because he says it again that Timothy should tell his readers or people that he pastors that they shouldn't go after riches either, like he shouldn't, verses 17 through 19. And the reason is they're storing up a good foundation for the future, same phrase, that they may take hold of eternal life. New King James. Now ESV says, take hold of that which is truly life, but I think the better option is the New King James because they are the same words in the original text. 
And the word take hold of means I catch it, I seize it. The very same analogy or the thought process is used in Philippians 3, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, again using the verb pursue, like we've been using, he says, I press. He says, I press, not because I've already attained or already made made this my own. I have not already done this. But here's what he says. But I press on to make it my own. That's the word take hold of. I press on to take hold of of Jesus because Jesus has taken hold of me. That's how eternal life works. That's how it means when you're running the race. That's what it means to be saved, that Jesus had seized Paul and Paul was seizing Jesus. Jesus had put his hand on Paul and now Paul was reaching out to hold on to Jesus. See, he will hold me fast. That's one of the songs we sing. And we will hold him fast. That's the other half of the equation. Timothy had been seized by eternal life and now in the present difficulties he was facing, Paul says, now you reach out and you hold on to God. Not because you're earning it, not because you're working on it, because you're persevering in it. Because you're holding on to him in it, he says. What does it look like? And I'll close with this. In the rest of the verses, there are parallel statements in verse 12. Fight the good fight and notice the same construction says, confess the good confession. Because you know how you run the race and take hold of eternal life? You keep confessing the good confession, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the example that he gives in our text is the way that Jesus did it, because the word good confession is repeated in Timothy's example and in Jesus' example. So if you want to learn how to run and hold on to it, even in the most difficult times, i.e. Jesus standing in front of Pontius Pilate, that's how you do it. You confess Jesus is Lord, and he is Lord because he claimed to be so. He says, I am a king, but not a kingdom of this world. And Pilate, and Jesus, did the, and Jesus wants Paul to do the same, and he did. He stood before the court and Caesar, and he declared that Jesus was Lord. And now, here's what Paul's saying. I want you to do the same thing. When it comes time for you to stand in front of Caesar, when I'm gone, and he calls on you, here's what you do. You keep confessing the good confession. You lay hold of Jesus and eternal life. You confess the good confession, he says, like Jesus did. And, and then how does he encourage him? Well, he closes with the last three verses with this large doxology. And why is he a doxology there? Why does he go into all of these uh, wonderful adorations of Jesus and who he is? Can I tell you why? Because at the end, he wants to compare Jesus to Caesar. He wants to pick, compare Lord Caesar to Lord Jesus, King Caesar to King Jesus. And he does it so Timothy will get this in his mind that no matter who Caesar thinks he is and how much power he has, he's nothing compared to King Jesus. And the contrast between standing before Jesus and standing for Caesar could be sooner than Timothy thought because it says someday Jesus is going to appear, he says. It's an epiphany, the same word of use when Caesar arrives certain places, that the king's going to come. And what kind of king is he? Oh, he's far greater, watch this, far greater than Caesar. And there's two times he uses the little word monos. It means the only one. And he says it in verse 15, that Jesus is the only sovereign. That comparatively, Caesar is no sovereign at all. He really isn't in control. So you don't have to be afraid of him, Timothy. You can run for the prize and you can hold on to Jesus. Don't ever let go. You know why? Because Nero is no one that you should worry about. He's not really sovereign. 
Because Jesus is not only sovereign. How sovereign? Well, he's a king of all, over all kings, including Caesar. He is the Lord of all lords, including Caesar. And then he says again a second time, he alone, he alone, he's the only one that has immortality. Here's the thing, Caesar, if he kills you, he will also, he's going to also die someday. He is limited, he's just a man, but not Jesus. No, he's the God man. He's far different. He lives eternally and he is in unapproachable light. He's not physical in the sense that he's only a body. He is God, very God, just like God the Father, God. No one has ever seen him, nor can see him. These are all descriptions in the Old Testament of God. And he wants you to know, you know, Caesar may be powerful, but he is no God. Even though the Roman Empire worshipped him and, and, and emperor worship was very much in vogue when this writing was given... It's a lie, Paul says. Timothy, listen, the only God, the only sovereign, the only one who is equal with God, no one could ever see in a unique category all by himself is Jesus. And he's the one you should honor. He's the one whose opinion you should put all the weight on. You know why? Because his dominion is not limited like Caesar's was. His is eternal So I wrote in my notes, you want to know how you take hold of eternal life? You keep your eyes on the eternal ruler of the universe, Jesus Christ. And he's coming back soon. He's coming back soon. And in light of that, Timothy, lace them up, he would say. Put on your running shoes and run from things, run to things, and most of all, run for this one thing, eternal life. That's the prize. Let me close with Paul's words. He says, I have fought the good fight. I I have agonized. I would say he has run the good race. He's finished his race. He kept or guarded the faith. Therefore, or henceforth, King James, there is laid up for me the crown, the crown which is righteousness. It's epexegetical. It means the crown... The crown is the righteousness given to you by Jesus. It's being Christian. It's the salvation. It's heaven and eternity and all that goes with it. He says, you know what? Because I ran the race, I held on to Jesus, I finished the course, I I didn't ditch the faith. He says, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. He says, "But, but listen to this. This is where you and I come in. But not to me only, but to all them also who love his appearing. Oh, faith family, let's lace it up. Let's put our shoes on. Let's run this race like Jesus did. And let's run so that we can win the prize by the grace of God and for the glory of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this challenge tonight from this rich text. I pray tonight for those who might be hearing this as Christians and and they're not running the way they should. Lord, they may have stopped to a walk and some to a crawl and, and some might even be thinking about taking off the shoes and ditching the race altogether. Father, I pray tonight that they would see that how we run and if we run matters. It matters. And for those who are running tonight and they're running, but they'd have beyond, there's a lot of obstacles they've, they've run over and, and, and fell down a few times over the hurdles, and, it, and it's difficult. They're facing some real struggles tonight. I, I pray especially for them, Father, that they would run from the things that are keeping them and the weights, they would drop them off, things that are holding them back. 
and they'd run to the things that they would want to develop their inner quality of character in their life because they want to be like you. And then we'd run for the prize and finish. Oh God, we need your help. We need your help to run and keep our eyes on Jesus, the perfect runner who ran the perfect race. Help us to focus on him, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.